All right. Welcome to episode 32 of the Pink Bike Podcast. Uh, I'm Brian Park, sitting in for Mike Levy. Uh, does anybody know where he is these days? Did he graduate from curling school? I think he's still in training. He's got a few more trainings to go before they let him out. I know he's pretty riled up about like all the technology changes to the brooms. They have too much control. He just doesn't like it. And they're getting so long, long and slack. Yeah, he's resistant to change, but this will be good for him. He's going to be good. How long before he puts a bottle cage on one? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Joining me are Mike Casimir, Sarah Moore, and James Smirthwaite. Uh, Did you guys get any riding in before the weather turned? I went skiing, and then I went biking, and then I went biking. So yeah, it was good. I did the opposite. I went biking and then skiing. Yeah. But yeah, it's actually pretty good conditions here again after the snow. So everything's melted. So yeah, this is the perfect ideal coastal weather. You know that you've just ruined it for the rest of the week, right, Sarah? Uh, Well, tomorrow looks pretty grim and rainy. But then after that, it looks like there's some windows for riding in there for sure. James, what about you? Yeah, we, we the weather never turned here. It just stayed same as wet as always. So riding and more riding, which is fine by me. Lovely. Yeah, I think people in the UK only ride when it's muddy. Well, you wouldn't ride otherwise, so yeah. you gotta got to get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> that seems fair. I did a quick Seymour lap on that EXT fork, Kaz, uh, and I also rode some gravel, which was nice. Nice. I found like a nice like within Vancouver lap that's pretty good. Um, okay, so the last few episodes of the podcast have been nice, but they've been very positive. They, just, they haven't been salty enough, and we've got to get some complaining out of our system. So before we get to the news... What do you guys have an irrational hatred of, uh, Kaz? I don't like blue Christmas lights. There's something about them that makes me super uncomfortable, and nobody should use blue Christmas lights. I don't really like Christmas or holidays or those things in general, but the blue Christmas lights, thats I can't stand them. I don't know why. Yeah, I like well, Christmas say- a lot, unlike you, but I don't like blue Christmas lights either, so we can agree on that at least. <laughs> I don't think, yeah, I think that a hatred of Christmas isn't necessarily irrational, but the colored lights making you upset, that's something else. Do you think it's like something deep-seated? Probably. Something in my childhood probably yeah. happened. Maybe I, I don't know, got strangled with blue Christmas lights or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Sarah, what about you? Uh, so I really hate it when people crack their knuckles and also chewing noises. Like it just when somebody's like eating in your ear, just like makes me really angry. And also if somebody's like, can you crack my back? Or they're cracking their fingers. It's like, nope, I'm going to go in the other room. See ya. So yeah. Seems like I a do. lot of people enjoy cracking their knuckles, but I'm not one of them. Sarah, I know that this podcast is going to be hard for you as a really, really incredibly positive person, but I, I appreciate that you're going to put your head down and, and try and get through it. I know. I was like, well, the last few episodes haven't been salty enough because you haven't been here, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> James, what what's your national hatred? Mine's pretty niche. Um, I, I really like like heavy guitar music, like black metal, death metal. But um, there's like a certain like strata of it, um, like Viking metal or pirate metal. And people like cosplay up, LARPing around, singing like sea shanties about mead and pillaging. And um, it makes me just cringe horribly. And yeah, I hate it. I can't deal with it. We used to have this good band around here called Three Inches of Blood. And they were kind of in the pirate genre, I'd say. They had some, yeah, I could see how you could not like that. So do you just like that they're not taking it serious, that they're not taking their corpse paid seriously or what's the... Oh yeah, it's very serious business, heavy metal, absolutely. Um, <laughs> it, it should be respected. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, mine is dead ants. I really don't like the smell of dead ants and other people can't smell it and I can smell the dead ants and maybe I have a brain aneurysm, but I'm pretty sure I just don't like the smell of dead ants. How close are you to smell dead ants? Are you like crawling on the ground? You're like, mm, dead no, ants. <laughs> no, just sometimes I can definitely tell that there's dead ants somewhere. You didn't and then other people, yourself? I'm just imagining well, squishing or, or with your little magnifying glass, just killing all the dead ants <laughs> and then be like, oh, this smells terrible. <laughs> no, I, I, I wouldn't kill them because I know how bad it smells when they're dead. <laughs> Fair. I just don't like it. But other people don't smell it. So it's yeah, just like your fear pheromone. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right. So before we take a trip to the uh, to the salt mine to talk about a bunch of things we want to see changed in the bike industry, uh, let's turn to James with the news. Thanks, Brian. Um, kicking off the news, uh, we've put 10 more bikes through the ringer in our latest field test. So Levy took on five trail bikes before he went into curling camp. And Kaz, you had five enduro 
maybe we'd even call some of them free ride bikes. Um, feels like we only just wrapped up the XC field test. So what can we expect from this one? Yeah, it's going to kind of follow the similar format to the field test we've been doing in the past. You're going to see all the same hook to flat. We've got some efficiency testing, impossible climb. Uh, got our round tables too. So even though I did my testing down here in Bellingham, Washington, and Levy did his up in Squamish, we still got some uh, good back and forth debates about the bikes. Uh, that should be pretty good. It's a good round. Like a the crop of bikes we have is pretty varied, which is interesting. We've got some, you know, the Active 5 bike in the, um, the trail bike category is kind of a bike most people have never even heard of. So it'd be interesting to compare that to some of the more mainstream brands. Um, yeah. And then, it's yeah, always like, a balance for us to, when we're choosing the bikes to go, do we choose the ones that are super out there and interesting or do we choose the ones that are the most relevant to people? So we try and find a mix. Yeah. So it should be good. And uh, yeah, there's a bike that's not announced yet in the category that I tested with. So it's pretty fun to see everybody try to guess what it is based off a blurry image of the head tube. So keep on some, guessing. <laughs> You'll find some, it eventually. Some people are close yeah there's some (laughs) you probably don't want to give too much away but like what was the biggest surprise for you from this field test um for me in my category there's a pretty big difference in how the bikes handled in general like everything from that norco shore which is a 37 pound free ride bike to the i don't know like the propane which is a 180 mil bike also but it, it handles just completely different than that shore so definitely interesting to go back and forth between the bikes and just see kind of which ones i preferred and which ones other people might prefer one thing that was really different this time around is just the spread of pricing compared to other years. And and that's a little bit due to uh, the COVID situation. People just didn't have the bikes in the range that we were looking for. So some of them are, what's the most expensive one, Kaz? Is it that S-Works Stump Jumper? Oh, maybe. Yeah. I can't remember all Levy's prices, but I know in my category, that Rocky Altitude is like $9,099. Yeah. I think the S-Works uh, one is even, even more than that. And then on yeah. the... the I don't want to say cheaper on the less expensive side. Uh, the, the least expensive one is what five or six. Yeah. The shore is like yeah. 51 99 for aluminum. Yeah. Um, yeah. most of the other ones are carbon. Some of these companies also only make the bikes in carbon. So that's the only way we could test them is get one that's going to still be, you know, fairly expensive. So mm-hmm. well, well, we can know. complain about that in a second. Um, yeah. but it, you know, while we're complaining, we're going to have to institute a, a hard cap on, even even regular field test i think in the future we're going to set a hard cap of i don't know what it's going to be if it's going to be five or six k like we don't want to we still want it to be high end for the for the fall field test but we want the product managers to actually have to make choices rather than just throw the most expensive thing at it in every instance yeah and realistically from like across the board these days you know one or two models down from the top is you know totally fine with minimal compromise except for the price so we'll figure it out for next time so moving on um 2020 seems to be the year of resurrected freeride bikes and next to get that treatment is the santa cruz bullet that's now reborn as a long travel emtv this has been designed with the syndicate in mind um it's supposed to be like a downhill as e-bike uh and that shows in the numbers too there's 170 millimeters of travel uh mullet wheels shimano's new ep8 motor and a pretty pretty large 630 watt hour battery Guys, do you remember the original bullet and were you glad to see it back in this new form? Yes, I definitely remember the original bullet. My buddy had one. He rode that thing for years and years in, in so many different forms. I think I've got a picture of him riding a like a ladder bridge over a ravine somewhere. So I'll have to dig that up if we get some if we do a review of the bullet. Um I'm glad to see the name back. I like it. And the fact that it's e bike is kind of funny. And yeah, it'd be interesting. Looks look, kind of fits in that category with the big the big bike that you used to get you to the top of the hill more easily and then probably feels closer to a downhill bike on the way down did they actually use downhillers e-bike in the in the marketing copy well i don't know if they uh, did I, I don't think we saw the marketing copy but yeah i know Dan Roberts okay. used so that's just it. from you because i was going to say isn't a downhillers e-bike just a downhill e-bike like isn't could i don't know yeah i don't know what it yeah i don't know this bike is more we call it a free ride it's a free ride e-bike like i don't know it's a, it kind of suits the kind of e-bike that i would want to ride where totally it needs to feel different enough than like, you know, it probably has a lot of power to throw you up the hill instead of just gently push you up the hill. So, um, just, yeah, we'll get one in like, eventually to try it. Yeah. Like you've got a motor. Why not? Why not bring a bit of extra suspension? I think that's mm-hmm. when it comes to e-bikes, this genre makes the most sense to me. Sticking with Santa Cruz. Um, uh, we also got a review of the Juliana Furtado from Sarah this week. Um, uh, so this is Juliana's version of the 5010. So it shares the same frame, but with women-specific grips and saddle, a shock tune for lighter riders, and different graphics. Um, how did you get on with it, Sarah? 
Yeah, I had a lot of fun on this bike. I think when I first got it, I was expecting, you know, a 130 mil travel bike with a 140 millimeter fork, like that it wouldn't be that capable. But it, uh, yeah, I was really surprised by what I could ride on this bike. And um, it, it kind of felt like that all rounder for Squamish where it's still, you know, a capable climber. And then it's really fun on the downhills. So yeah, it kind of pops around and it's really, uh, yeah, a great bike. Did you struggle to not use the word playful? Uh, poppy, playful, you know, all the, <laughs> try not to use all the cliches. <laughs> yeah. It's just so right. agile. Yeah. There's only so many ways you can describe it before going too deep into thesaurus and then people don't know what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. It's like you need, you need the thesaurus for a certain amount. So you're not too cliche, but then if you use words that nobody understands, then it doesn't really help explain how the bike rides and whether you should buy it or not. Um, next up, uh, one up has announced a new light version of its EDC steerer multi-tool. Uh, this one's a bit stripped back. It only features nine tools, but it doesn't require you to thread your steerer tube, uh, as the kind of the, the regular one does. Um, it's good to see some out of the box thinking here. Um, I've not seen this system before where you kind of knock down your star nut and then it kind of screws in. Um, I'm sure it'll be a good option for those people who find kind of threading a steerer tube pretty daunting. Um, what did you guys think? Yeah, I actually have one of these and installed it. It's pretty straightforward. I also like that they had a bunch of their pro athletes make little videos on social media to install them. So if you're a little bit scared, you could watch a couple of people install it before you install your own. So it was like an interesting marketing technique and yeah, it's, uh, works how they say it should so far. Did you guys see Jesse's? Oh, he, he installed it while he was riding. That was pretty good. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ralph Hollies is back with a new version of his Morhoon. Um, this time it's a fully titanium frame that's designed to, um, these are his words, cut corners like a chicken does. Um, so for a quick refresher, that bike was the additive manufactured bike made from steel and polished to like a mirror finish for the European bike competition. Um, and by changing it from steel to titanium, uh, Ralph has taken a kilo of weight from it. Um, as you might expect, it's another kind of great looking bike, um, but there's only going to be 12 of them produced. So don't expect to see one on your local trails anytime soon. Is it still additive or is he, is yeah. he welding these? It's still, yeah, it's, yeah. it's titanium additive this time. Cool. Yeah. He's not welded it himself. He doesn't, he, he does not have to weld titanium, but he's made the, the, what do you call them? The lugs and, um, yeah, he's got someone else to weld it, but yeah, it's all titanium. Yeah. I'm sure I could have read the article. Sorry. I still don't know if I understand what cut corners like a chicken does. <laughs> you ever see a chicken run when they when they turn? They're like, Rah! Oh, maybe I haven't watched French enough chickens chicken run. <laughs> it's like slow, slow and squawky corner cutting. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be a chicken racing video somewhere. We'll find it for you. <laughs> uh, I've, it's, very, it's rare that you get a manufacturer talking about cutting corners. Um, we'll finish the news uh, off with some good news um, and our friends at Bike Mag seem to have landed on their feet after being furloughed in October. Um, Pocket Outdoor Media has hired five of the editorial staff there and they're going to be starting a new mountain biking publication that's currently untitled and they're going to be carrying on in print as well as online so that's good to see. Um, I personally hope this means we get some more Palmer's Peeves um, that probably go well on this podcast. Um, what are you guys expecting to see from this? <laughs> this podcast is going to just be Palmer's Peeves, <laughs> long form pink bike edition. Yeah. Sorry, Palmer. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they can get, keep the stories going and pictures and all the things that were good about Bike Magazine. So we'll see. Definitely, a, I mean, yeah, it's a risky time to start a print magazine of any kind. So hopefully this one works out. I hope uh, they, I know Ferentino isn't, one of those five, but I hope they still do that column, do Ferentino's column. Yeah, the Grammy handshake needs to yeah. keep going. Well, that's it for the news. But before we get into questions, uh, this week, the Pink Bike Podcast has a sponsor, and that's the Pink Bike Shop. Yes, we're sponsoring ourselves. Um, the latest winter collection of Pink Bike merch is now available with new hoodies, new jackets, and new colors in all our stuff. Right now, the entire shop is on sale, up to 50% off for Black Friday. And for podcast listeners, there's an additional 20% off if you use the code PINKBIKEPODCAST, or one word, at checkout. The sale ends on November 30th, and there are limited quantities available. So head over to shop.pinkbike.com to check it out. All right. 
Uh, that was a good ad read, James. Uh, let's get into some questions. Uh, all right. Our first question comes from YouTube from Josh Saunders, uh, who's requesting us to do an entire new uh, field test for tall, really tall people. Uh, longer and slacker just hasn't gotten long enough yet for us giants, or am I missing something? Well, I'm sorry. We, I can't just fire everybody and only hire tall testers to do a whole new field test, but there are some good brands that are doing stuff for, for big wheels. Kaz, do you want to maybe? Yeah. Um, yeah. If you're depending on how tall you are, but I'd say that the kind of the bigger companies tend to have the wider range of, uh, of sizes for taller riders. So like, you know, specialized, that new stump jumper goes up to 528 millimeter reach, which is pretty long. Um, Norco, I think their longest site is around 515 millimeters. Trek Slash is around the same in Santa Cruz. So, um, yeah, basically you just kind of, you know, look at geometry charts and kind of figure out what reach number you're looking for. Um, and you know, look at the C2 blank, C2 bangle, all that. But, um, I'd say overall, yeah, start with the bigger brands and they're, you know, potentially if you're super tall, you might even need to look at the custom route to get yeah. something like it, that. It's either the big brands or the very little brands. It's the in-between brands have, uh, have to kind of hit the meat of the market rather than the edges of the market. And so it's hard to justify super, super big bikes for those sort of medium bike companies. But if you're a small bike company, you're, you're trying to build a niche. So the Nikolai's and, and those of the world or the big guys. Yeah. Um, yeah I guess we should mention Nikolai. They probably have yeah. one of the longest yeah, bikes out there. All right. Next we've got Kev Roberts has a question for us. Uh, oh, a couple of questions. Uh, one, have you, ever seen a product like a complete bike a frame a fork or a group set that you really wanted to try but it just wasn't possible to get your hands on one um for one reason or another if so what was the reason you couldn't get your hands on it um, i mean i'd say we're pretty lucky that most things that we'd like to try we're able to get our hands on sometimes it takes a little longer if they're delayed or just if they don't have samples available but off the top of my head i can't think of a bike that i really wanted to try that i haven't yet um there, there are sometimes some yeah. brands that are that are in, on the more insecure side, for sure, that have struggled with criticism in the past and are reluctant to send us bikes sometimes. Um, I don't know. We are pretty lucky. I kind of want to try some of the historical stuff. I think I, I replied to his comment that I wanted to try the Honda bike and some airlines. Oh, yeah, that'd be sweet. Yeah, if we could find those, that would be that'd be cool. Yeah. But yeah, but, but for modern new things, it, we are in a pretty lucky position that we can try, try most of them. So. All right. Uh, last question from riding and wrenching uh who asks how do you make your bike stand up for photo shoots i watch the field test videos and the bike bikes are just standing there with no obvious support do you just shoot quickly before it falls over yes <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah. a there's like the floating bike technique it's also good for your instagram por portfolios and a also good for the field test content where you just like hold the back wheel and then do a countdown three, two, one, and then move out of the shot quickly before, and then catch the bike before it falls over quickly, especially when it doesn't have pedals on it. Really important to catch the bike before it falls over. Yeah. Yeah. This is a secret bonus content for everybody listening to the podcast. So don't tell anyone else. They have to just make <laughs> them listen to this if they want to find out. The other also way. Also sometimes, yeah, yeah. Fishing, fishing line sometimes for the videos, use fishing line or a stick that later gets... Uh, photoshopped out so those are the three ways but yeah the hold the bike up let go and it balances that's the secret now you know for video it's definitely fishing line and then trying to angle your light so that it doesn't catch the fishing line in the light um all yeah, right the video they need to hold it up for a little while so the floating yeah. it doesn't really work <laughs> we could get the phantom cam out yeah it's like anthill we just need to take, get some shots we did have a pretty good um, in the rocky mountain field test video last year the bike just tipped over Oh, yeah. That's pretty good. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's get to it. Uh, so today's discussion is things that we need to change in the bike industry. Sorry, not that we need to change. We're just going to complain about it till it changes and then take credit. But um, things we'd like to see changed in the bike industry. Um, it's, a, it's a big, long list. And yes, hat tip to Palmer and his peeves. I just realized looking at our list, that there's definitely a few things that he's covered on there. But there's some other stuff, too um kaz let's start with you i know you've got a good list of things that have been bugging you yeah let's see we'll start off with i've got a good a solid chunk of just brake related peeves because brakes are probably one of the most important parts on a bike and they still aren't perfect yet so on the cheaper bikes too many bikes come with resin only rotors or even just with resin pads like 
I know resin pads are quieter, but I want power during all weather conditions. So give me metallic pads on everything. And speaking of power, I also wish that brands wouldn't skimp on putting powerful brakes on bikes that deserve them. So like I've got a you know bike now that has four piston brake in the front and two piston in the rear. And I just don't understand why. Like you could just modulate the power of a different rotor size rather than having different piston configurations. Um, I, I guess I get the theory behind it, but I just in practice, just give me more power. Yeah, exactly. And also like, SRAM's G2 brakes, those show up on some bikes, but there's only, I think it's a 40 gram difference between those and code brakes. And the code brakes are so much more powerful that it's rare that I'm ever on brakes and like, oh, these are too powerful. Like that doesn't really happen unless maybe those trick stuff ones. But for the map, you know, overall, I'd rather have more power than less power. So uh, in my ideal world, they just stick codes on everything. But would, we'll see. would you, Kaz, would you put a four piston, four piston, uh, like 160 rotor or a, or a, two piston two or 223 rotor even like i'd rather just have four piston for the long the like fade breed <laughs> Wait, I oh, can, right. maybe i missed your question but you said would i rather run a smaller rotor with four pistons with more or pistons, bigger rotor yeah. with two pistons yeah I, if i had to pick i'll go smaller rotor with four pistons mm-hmm. yeah yeah but uh, yeah those are my brake related ones i'm still it having makes... issues with shimano brakes too they're still annoying me sorry shimano but i feel like they need to figure it out. I've just, I've had three bikes lately and I've had to bleed all of the brakes and all of them. And usually so far this year with SRAM, I haven't had to bleed that many. So. And even after you bleed those Shimano brakes, there's still some wandering. Still something happening yeah. in there. So yeah. I don't know. That's on the XT. All those ones I'm complaining about right now are the XT brakes. So I don't know. I'm going to figure that out. But so that's a peeve. Um, we keep going on. Well, that was some Shimano complaining, but I got some SRAM complaining. The dub cranks you can't get them off without a breaker bar. Like otherwise you'll give yourself a hernia and your back will explode. Like they're so tight once they're on the, the bike that it's a pain in the ass to take them off. Is that a, just a torque spec thing at the factories or what do you yeah, think? Somebody went crazy zesty with the torque gun. It's not set right. Cause it's so tight. Like <laughs> they just have some Hulk, incredible Hulk at the factory. It's just reefing them on. Cause yeah, they get <laughs> just, it's crazy tight. I don't know. Ask anybody that's working in a shop what it's like taking dub cranks off. It's a pain in the ass. No. Let's see. Yeah. Another thing I like to see is geometry changes. Like we get a lot of bikes with flip chips and geometry adjusts, but sometimes they don't do anything. They change it by like maybe a half degree, which even, even sometimes it's less than that. So it's like a few millimeters. I just don't see the point of even including that. Like most people are going to just stick it in one setting. So if you're going to have a geometry adjust, it might as well make a drastic change so that you could have, you know, a bike with two different personalities. Is is there a bike that's done that well? Like what's, what bike have you regularly kind of used on? I think I think Specialized this year really did a good job with that, with giving you enough options. Like that new Stump Jumper Evo, you can go from a 63-degree head angle all the way up to 65.5, which that's a range that's a long enough range that you'd be able to really tell a difference. Where if you have like a bike that's 64 degrees and it goes to 64.3, like that's not really a big difference and you won't, you know, it's one not going to cool change things, bike handles. One of the really cool things about that Specialized is that they've somewhat made those changes uh, independent. Whereas a lot of times, if you had a, a design that had a big change in your head tube angle, you'd end up dropping the BB too low or in the steeper position, it's too high. Um, Specialized, you somewhat independently make those changes. And so you can have a slacker head tube angle without ruining and then still choose where you put your BB. Yeah, it's kind of it's nice in that way. And also, you know, a big fan of, that we are seeing more companies come out with adjustable chain stays. And the, those do affect the shock a little bit uh, in some cases. It gives you more or less travel and kind of tweaking the leverage ratio. But having a 10 millimeter chainstay um, option, it, it does change how the bike handles. So that's kind of nice. If the company doesn't do size-specific chainstays, having the option to make them longer or shorter does kind of give riders a just a way to fine-tune their bike to their height or riding style. That one almost seems more important to me than, like, I'm not a huge geometry changes guy in the first place. I think brands should have confidence, be self-confident in the design you've made and decide this is the right thing for, for this intended use. But yeah, that, that, uh, chainstay length is one that is such a personal, whether you want to have more playful or racy or whatever, that one seemed like, I get it. I get why they would do that one. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, this overall, like, yeah, I'm fine with bikes not having geometry changes too. Like, like you said, if they're, if they're confident that that's the way they think the bike should ride, just 
ship it out that way and it should be good. And then otherwise, if they want people to have the option, just make it a big enough option that it that it affects the way the bike feels. And don't call it two bikes in one if it's a 0.3 millimeter difference. <laughs> Definitely. Not. Yeah. And even then, most people aren't going to be changing their geometry. Like every ride, you know, might be for the occasional like trip up to the Whistler or something. Maybe they, I could see tweaking the geometry, but I bet that like 98% of the riders just find one position and leave it all the time because it's just easier that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I guess kind of going back to component complaints that I've got lately. I guess ergonomics on shifters, like cheap shifters that don't play well with other parts. Like if they non-matchmaker compatible shifters kind of annoy me. And that goes also matchmaker in general and iSpec. Like the fact that shifters from different companies don't play well with their brakes drives me nuts. Like I know they don't need to get along because they're two different companies, but like why can't I make my Shimano brakes work with a a SRAM shifter or vice versa? I understand why. but Shimano gets extra extra grumpiness from me on that one because at least SRAM has one matchmaker standard. Yeah, and it Shimano works. Has, yeah, and it does the thing. Shimano, you have 200,000 different iSpec iterations. Yeah, like, there's so many. Just, I mean, I guess they're keeping the little companies in business, like problem solvers and makes their little like adapters, but I feel like there's got to be some sort of solution that's simpler than needing to figure out which... Uh, and which I feel bad for, for all the, you know, if you're Magura or Trickstuff stuff or, or any of these sort of third-party... I guess maybe we just answered our question as to why they're doing it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just, it, yeah, they have to have 10 different clamps and stuff for different shifters. And, ugh. Yeah. Yeah. That's, there's room for improvement there. Some sort of like sort of standard. I don't know. The word standard doesn't make mean much these days, but something that everyone kind of agrees on. Like, Hey, this is how we make stuff play together. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess I my mean, final, Oh, you could just use two clamps. <laughs> yeah. That too. Yeah. But then sometimes, like, if you buy a bike and it has a Shimano shifter that's already um, kind of like does the iSpec mount to the brake, mm-hmm. and then you decide to upgrade or switch out your brakes to something else, then you're stuck with a shifter that doesn't have a band clamp on it, and there's no easy way to make that go on your bars. We could rename this whole podcast just First World Problems, couldn't we? Yes, we could. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of First World Problems, though, I would like to see more alloy frame options come out there. We're starting to see a lot of new bikes come out just in carbon, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with carbon, but they are also more expensive. So if someone's wanting to build up a bike and then all they can buy is the carbon one, that's, that's a lot of money that they don't necessarily need to spend. So do you, so do you mean frame onlys or just, yeah, they frame only, or, or just a, or just a complete bike. It doesn't mm-hmm. either way, like a complete bike alloy option is great too. Just like a reasonably priced one to accompany the crazy expensive carbon ones. I, you know, I agree. I, it always bums me out when a brand does do a full spread of alloy and carbon, but then only the carbon ones available in frame only that, that sucks. Yeah, that too. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, yeah, I mean, I, I understand it to a point, but then it seems like might as well just make some alloy frames and let people enjoy that bike without spending four grand on a frame. I mean, a lot of that, we could just be wrong here. Like if people don't buy it, they don't make it. If they were buying it or asking for it, I assume, I guess they'd make it, but. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I mean, carbon still does have that allure, you know, it's carbon who fancy, but like all the bikes that I get to ride, it doesn't really, it doesn't bother me at all to ride an aluminum frame. I'm not like, oh, I, I need to be on carbon. This is unridable. It's, it's not even anything like that at all. Like I like the feel of aluminum and, um, yeah, I'm still riding that common saw. That's all the aluminum and that's kind of the bike I've been riding the most for the last three months or so and which one is that the tr or the yeah the meta tr yeah i'm just kind of it's kind of turned into my new uh test test bed for parts and suspension and things and yeah all the aluminum and it's great so all right yeah. let's move on to sarah i know this is going to be hard for you let's uh let's put you on the spot okay so i have to do this in my best uh whiny whiny voice here complaining <laughs> okay, so something that I would really like to see is more women racing. I'm not going to come up with any solutions here, but um, I mean, it is. Notice, guys, notice how that she fr- reframed it in a positive direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somehow you're still not <laughs> complaining while you're complaining. Magic. <laughs> I'm sick of there not being any more women <laughs> that I can watch racing and emulate. <laughs> there you go. Um, That's more like it. Yeah, it's definitely more fun for me to watch. I mean, I like watching men's racing, but it's just different when you're um, a woman to watch 
women's racing. And I think their racing is super exciting. And, um, you know, Red Bull actually showed all 10 of the women who were racing in finals at Luza, but there was only 10 women. It's like, I wish, I wish the women's field was deeper in, in downhill. Um, it is deeper in cross country. It's getting there in enduro, but yeah, it's, I'd love to see more women just like sending it in downhill. So, but part of that, that I can also complain about is that I don't think a lot of those pro women in enduro or downhill are making a, a living wage. Um, what's the solution? You know, brands need to pay them more. Um, the racing needs to appeal to more people. I, I don't have the solution, but I would like to see more women being able to make a living wage, uh, racing enduro and downhill and making it exciting for me to watch them every weekend or as many weekends as possible, COVID allowing. That's a, I mean, it's totally a chicken and egg thing too, right? If you, if the women, if there's more women on the live stream, uh, more women racing, more women on the live stream, that means there's more value to their sponsors. That means their sponsors theoretically pay them more, all those things. So it's, it's a bit weirder in Enduro where <clears throat> there Nobody's is Nobody's on the live stream. Yeah. There is no live stream and, and it is fairly, you know, like the, the top 30 ladies and the top 30 men get fairly similar, fairly similar, um, exposure. It's just that, that one I think is a real problem because so many of those ladies are not making what they should be making. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's not sustainable. Yeah. And it's so expensive to, you know, travel the world for all those races that as a privateer, like, you know, you're definitely sacrificing a lot to, you know, not have a full-time job for, you know, the races usually run from like March to October. Um, and so if you don't have somebody who's helping pay your wage, then you can't really train for, uh, the races. Um, if you're, you know, working 80 hours all winter. So, um, yeah, like I said, I don't have the solution. I just want to see more women getting a living wage, more women racing and, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get there one day. It is, I think that is why some of the brands excuse or just reality, like it costs a lot to send somebody around for a year or for a season to the EWS. So then they're like, oh, and that's why we can only pay you $6,000 this year. And that just, yeah, not good. <laughs> it's so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what, what do you do for the rest of the year? It's like, maybe, maybe you get sent to all the races and you get a free bike, but yeah, that doesn't really go that long there are there are definitely women in the top 30 of the ews who are getting a bike and their travel covered yeah i mean some That's... are probably even paying for a lot of their own parts and and mm -hmm. that kind of thing in the top 30 like yeah i i don't know the numbers of who's actually making a living wage in enduro but i'm gonna say it's pretty pretty low unfortunately so mm -hmm. all right sarah you're on a roll Okay, I'm good at complaining. Here we go. Okay, so <laughs> we get a lot of really mediocre shredded submitted. <laughs> um, there's some really great ones as well. Oops, I'm supposed to complain. Okay. Um, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of mediocre ones with like, you know, it's just like a kid who is doing the best they can with the... Um, with the, you know, the video friend that they have that's shooting them. And that's that's one thing. But it's worse when it's like really subtle or not at all subtle product placement from a brand, um, in like a high quality production. Um, so I'd rather see like high quality production and, you know, something interesting. Like, can we get beyond the, like, here is the side profile of the bicycle and here I am putting on my helmet. And, um, yeah, let's, I don't know how we can make them more interesting. The I love when it when there's like the dialogue and the stories and like the documentary style stuff. And yeah. I just hate it when it's a really, really sick rider in a really sick place. And then they clearly just spent an afternoon shooting because they had to fulfill some contractual obligation to some part sponsor. And it's like, ah, yeah. Or like the, their sponsor was like, yeah, we're going to give you X amount of money. And they're like, okay, we're going to try to get this done in three hours. Here we go. One minute, shred yeah. it. And you're like, oh yeah. 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 <laughs> So yeah, there's a lot of. Do you think anyone's ever bought a pair of goggles after seeing them being put on in slow motion? In a video? <laughs> yes, I'm unfortunately, say, yes. No, <laughs> no way. <laughs> <laughs> you say yes, Brian? Have you done yeah, that? Right? Like no, <laughs> I haven't. But I guarantee you that that uh, people have bought goggles because they were like, "Oh, that looks sick." Yeah, usually that's when I like groan, fast forward, and be like, 
No, we're not. I'd reject. <laughs> well, one of our future talking or podcasts uh, that we've kind of got in our little idea boards is does racing actually sell bikes? Um, sort of a dig into sports marketing and what what actually happens downstream from from all that exposure from racing. So we can dig into that another time. Ooh, Too, we slow talk about sell product. Yeah. Too slow motion sell product. So many mediocre team vlogs shredded too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's just a lot of content out there and it's hard to like sift sift through it all and like, you know, make something original. And yeah, I like I like to watch interesting videos. So if you guys could just keep being creative and making interesting videos that I want to watch, that would be great. Sarah wants everybody to break themselves off. It's really kind of cruel of you, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a cruel person. Yeah, so I need to go hit the jaw drop. No one's like, we got Dave Watson's road gap got hit. That jaw drop's still just sitting there. <laughs> yeah, Somebody. instead of your next trail shred it, have you considered hitting the jaw drop? <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, people. <laughs> uh, that also, why was that so hidden in the video? Like, if James hadn't well, called it out in the... That wasn't the jaw drop. It just looks exactly like it. Oh, sorry, the Dave, the Dave Watson, the guy who hit the... Uh, the drop in that last video the we talked about it recently one. yeah i thought oh, it was the... weird too how they just like it was like the third to last shot or something yeah like yeah if you're gonna do something good in the video like you know get us interested at the beginning like <laughs> well, he did a bunch of other good things and that video was sick yeah but not as sick as that part <laughs> true <laughs> fair i mean that's fine too you can put the banger at the end that's fine as long as you got some other bangers before then, so I'm holding on until it the was end. good. That was a sick video. <laughs> <laughs> there is extra critical these days. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm the positive one here. I know. <laughs> fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. Yeah. YouTube watching stuff in like two or th two speed. That's great. It's changed my life. Yeah. yeah. I get through so many more mediocre shreddits now. Yeah. <laughs> two speed. You still make it through them? I don't always make it through them even at <laughs> <a> two speed. <laughs> is this like speed police, but on purpose? Yeah, pretty much. I guess I, I would never know if a video has been sped up doing that, but it's a risk I'm willing to take to get through them quicker. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> um, and then the one other thing I was going to complain about is all of the men commenting on the Juliana Furtado review that went live today. Um, obviously, the bike is not for you. And so you don't have to comment. It's fine. Don't worry about it. There's lots of people that I'm sure will like this bicycle. And if you're not one of them, then fine. that's fine. <laughs> we talked about this in the women's podcast. You can go back and listen to that if you feel threatened by this bicycle. <laughs> it's also not a secret that it's the same bike as a 5010. There's a lot of people that don't read the review at all. And then they comment like, isn't this just a 5010? Like, yeah, yeah, I wrote a whole <laughs> sentence or two on that at least. Uh -huh. you know? <laughs> Moving yeah. beyond that, there's a whole uh, review that, you know, I rode the bike for quite a while and I would like to share those thoughts with you. <laughs> and and because it is similar, you like you can extrapolate a lot of those same things over to a 5010. It could just be more exactly, useful. Exactly, yeah. You would think that a lot of people who are interested in the 5010 would also be interested in this Furtado review because they are the same bike with spec changes. So. Yeah. It's true. I almost thought about like making a slash in the headline and saying Santa Cruz 5010 as well, but I didn't. But yeah. 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 Well, speaking of two bikes in one, uh, one of my pet peeves is, or not pet peeves, just things that, things that I don't love to see is reusing front triangles on designs from bike to bike. Um, I, I get why brands, especially smaller brands, are doing it to save money, but it always ends up that either either one of the bikes is a is pretty compromised or they kind of split the difference between it's it's normally a trail bike and an enduro bike or a downcountry bike and a trail bike and they have to design the front triangle to do both so yeah there's often either a compromise between the two or one of them is like severely compromised, but they don't have an enduro bike this year. So for the next year and a half while they're designing an enduro bike, they just long shock it. And yeah, they've got a kind of steep enduro bike with bad kinematics or yeah. So that's one I don't love to see. I get why it happens, but I don't love to see it. Kaz, just saw your eyes raise. Disagree. No, it's fine. Yeah. Like I agree. It's hard to make it work out. Like in some cases it sort of works, but a lot of times what happens is that bigger bike ends up having a shorter reach and, because we put the taller fork on that same front triangle. They can get the shocks to work, I'd say, because you can just put a different link. But um, 
yeah, it is. I'm on, I'm with you. You know, I understand why it happens. Carbon molds aren't cheap, but it is nice to have bikes that are specifically made to do what they're designed for. Yeah, and your seat tube end up being too slack because you slack yeah. the front end out and the it's connected. Yeah, a lot of times it's the shorter travel one that gets the better geometry and then the longer mm-hmm. one gets funky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think probably my biggest freak out recently was trying to deal with some crank things and then going down the rabbit hole of figuring out, and we talked about this a few podcasts ago, but just all of the different spindles, different frame standards, all in terms of bottom brackets, just it's, it's wild. There's, there's only three main spindle widths. So that's not the end of the world. 24, 28, 99 and 30, which I mean the 28, 99 existing while 30 exists, that's its own thing but at least they kind of standardized some things within their system. Um, SRAM did. Um, but the frame standards, is just crazy. So many, all the different widths of BSA, T47, BB86 slash 92, but BB86 is actually 86.5 mils. And then there's 90 mil, 91.5 is 92, 104.5, the downhill versions, 107, all the different names also mixed from like BB something like BB and then number to PF something or BB something. It's, it gets super weird. And then you've got like BB 30, you got PF 30 goes down to like 392 Evo, which is just a PF 30 with a 92 mil shell. Like it just goes on and on and on and it hurts my head. Yeah. I do like to think that hopefully in the next five years, some of these just kind of disappear and we're stuck. We're left with the ones that kind of float into the top. Cause like we don't see new bikes these days too many. It's not too many new mountain bikes or like a BB 30 anymore, but there was a few years like when specialized was using that. So mm-hmm. that's why you get leftovers and bike shops have to have all the tools to work on these bikes. So, and, you know, and still make bottom brackets for them. Um, yeah. But yeah, hopefully at you know, five years we get leftover with just threaded bottom bracket. And then if someone still wants to do press, it just BB 92 and those could be the two and I'd be fine with that. That'd be nice. And Oh man, don't get me started on the tools too. Like, yeah. A, there's a million different tools you need. I think there's like six common bottom bracket threading tools plus all the press fitty stuff. Um, and the tools aren't standard. So ask me how I found this out. <laughs> the the tools don't have the tools don't have they don't get the drawings from the manufacturers. The the tool manufacturers don't get the drawings from the part manufacturers. There's no like standard spec for some of these bottom bracket standards. So in terms of threading and unthreading things, so they just have to go and measure one. Like they'll go and buy a Chris King bottom bracket or a, a Cane Creek bottom bracket and measure it and make a tool for it. And then they're like, well, I hope all the other bottom brackets in this standard also are the same. And they're not often. Um, yeah, it's a nightmare. How many tools did you buy? <laughs> uh, I bought, I bought, four of the different bikes oh, and then <laughs> and then one of them had to go back to the manufacturer well didn't they just sent me another one because it didn't fit they did a running change and machined a bunch of the things differently to to fix the fact that it fits some of some people's bottom brackets but not others and yeah it's it's wild bottom brackets figure it out yes um what's next uh, creaky CSUs. I think that's an easy, <laughs> we can just move past. Yes. It's annoying. We're going to do a story on some creaky CSU stuff going forward, but yeah, it sucks. It it's 2020. It shouldn't be a problem. It still is. Please fix. Agreed. Yeah. I don't know. Like, is there yeah. a reason Kaz? Like, do you see a, I mean, it, I'd like, I'd be interested to know how many, how, prevalent it is like you still hear about it but obviously if you bought a thousand dollar fork and it was starting to creak you would be bitching everywhere and just you know commenting on all the forums about your creaky bike your creaky fork but think of how many other thousands they've sold that didn't creak so i'd be interested to know how common it is um it's been a while since i've had a creaky fork i'd say but i've definitely had it happen and i hate when it happens because you as soon as you hear that kind of like like oh there it goes time to you know not yeah. gonna be fixed um yeah so we'll dig into it and kind of see where what the state of the the creaky fork world is these days and see if there's any solutions coming down the road. But I think something, there are some, you know, potentially, yeah, I don't, I don't actually know the exact solution because pressing one thing into another thing, you know, if tolerances are off a little bit, you start getting some play and then you get noise. So we'll see. I mean, there's some cool 
some cool solutions like that on that ext fork that's an interesting way to do it mm-hmm. um some people just say that we have to use dual crown forks if we want to not have creaks um i don't quite buy that i wonder if it's just like accepting a you know 80 gram weight penalty with some material or or accepting oh, i don't want to i don't want to machine one piece <laughs> steers and crowns but yeah i mean sometimes you get the creek coming from where the stanchion presses into the steer so mm-hmm. then there's a whole other spot you know you basically have the three points that it can creek at each stanchion tube and then where the steer tube presses into the um steer so there's lots of movement and force and things happening there so yeah we'll dig into it and see if we can see what companies are thinking james you had something to say yeah i was just going to say if it meant going to that 1.8 standard um mm-hmm. would you be against that yeah, I don't think we need to go there. It'd be my thing. I don't think we need another standard. I don't feel like going bigger is necessarily always going to be the solution, but who knows? I mean, I feel it might be a little bit like bars where at a, after a certain point, it's if you go that big, you end up having to make the material so thin to keep it from being heavy that it you, you get diminishing returns and all of a sudden now it's pretty fragile. It might creak more. So I don't know. I think there's got to be some solutions. I don't. I don't accept that we can have thousand dollar to like close to two thousand up in Canada here, up close to two thousand dollar suspension forks that that can creak with with like intended use riding. Like that's just ugh. Um, what else? I was going to complain about center lock, but I don't think I'm going to. You can. It's stupid. Just go to six bolt. Like I get yeah. the point. I get. I do like how convenient and easy it is for center lock, but because not everything is center lock, but that but also brings a, me. That's to, not a good reason to to not change. Well, yeah, because they have the hub that's center lock only, so you can't put six bolt on that, and then you need to run an adapter. And whenever you run an adapter, yeah. that's super annoying. So super annoying. But uh, six I don't bolt. know. But like, why couldn't everything go to center lock? Like, I don't really care one way or the other. I just, yeah. Yeah, well, while we're talking about that, I thought of something else. I don't understand why we need to have 203 mil rotors and 200 mil rotors and then the adapters that go with all those. Like, just agree, please. Somebody decide that just go with this, go with even numbers. Just go 180, 200, 220 and then stop the three mil weird increments because then you need to use spacers and things. Yeah, that's just, that's just Shimano, right? Yeah, well, SRAM, I mean, yeah, Shimano makes 203 and then SRAM makes 200. So you have to put a couple of washers in there to get your adapters to work. Do you think they'll ever change that? Probably not. Ugh. Is that a patent thing or is it just they want to have the biggest rotor? I think it's just to be different. I don't know. You can, yeah. you can make it. Oh, I'm get... sure that there is a spreadsheet somewhere that actually has a good justification, but it's just a good justification from 20 years ago or something that doesn't isn't relevant to today. Like, yeah. Do you think one thing on going back to brakes? I want. I wonder if there's a, a case to be made for just thickening rotors a little bit. Like that's one thing that the e-bike stuff seems to have done well is made for some thicker rotors. Yeah, I run thicker rotors. I use those trick stuff, and I have some TRP ones. Uh, I think it makes a difference. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, there's good. more metal to sink. Yeah. Yeah. You lose a little bit of uh, pad clearance there potentially. So, Mm -hmm. um, but it does work. Like you can run thicker rotors on any, any bike. There's usually enough room uh, to expand the pistons. It's kind of reset them back and be fine. All right. Uh, next for me is bikes with nice drivetrains, but mediocre suspension. Um, it's crazy that in 2020 we've got bikes where it used to be the thing was like you people looked at a rear derailleur as a indicator of quality on a bike. And that hasn't been relevant for 20 years. (laughs) Uh, and we need to, we need to not think about the rear derailleur. Somebody on, on one of the field test articles was talking about how a a, a bike like, Oh, they're charging $6,000 for an SLX crank. It's like, I don't care what the crank is. The real problem is that it, they expect Kashima with a fit four fork. Like put your money into a better damper. And like, I don't, yeah, I don't, anything up above SLX level really like get your suspension first, sorted first. Yep. Yeah, I agree. There's, that's the nice thing now is plenty of good options from SRAM or Shimano in the 12 speed world. You don't need to have the fanciest drivetrain. You know, 
I'd rather have good brakes and good suspension before the drivetrain moves up. Especially because the suspension is so hard to upgrade in terms of cost after the fact. Like you can buy a bike with nice suspension and a mediocre drivetrain, run the drivetrain off and upgrade it when it needs replacing. Whereas hopefully your suspension doesn't need replacing in for a long time. Um, okay. What's next for me? Bad OE tires. Uh, this hasn't, this has kind of gone away a little bit. Yeah. Which is I'd nice. say for the most part, it's rare that yeah. every once in a while, a product manager will kind of just, I think he puts down the wrong number and you get a, a tire with maybe a casing that's too light or something for the intended purpose. But overall, compound and tread has gotten way better in the last few years. Yeah. I'm not saying that everything needs to be like Maxis or Schwalbe and double down casings and stuff, but like there are lots of alternative tires out there for product managers to choose but obviously it should match the intended use the thing that used to be really bad was putting the hard compound tires on on bikes i never understood why it must have been a cost thing Uh, and you still see do see it sometimes and i just feel like bike brand or uh tire brands some tire brands have absolutely killed their brands by allowing product managers to spec shit tires on their bikes because now that's everybody's first experience with your tires is these rock hard OE ultra light tires that just, yeah, ruin a brand forever for you. It's just really short sighted. James, you were nodding. Did, yeah, did just rings a bell, to be honest. <laughs> um, in my, I don't know, it's maybe 10 years ago or something, but I think, yeah, I had that exact experience and I've never used that brand of tire again. So, yeah, definitely rings a bell. Maybe, yeah, maybe we're past that now. So, complaining for complaining's sake uh $40 grips i that's just the worst let's not do that uh tall seat tubes uh i kaz i was surprised at the number of bikes that came out this year that didn't factor in long dropper posts yeah me too it's still yeah i think the short seat tubes are great just because you can run a 200 mil dropper post at least on the large sizes these days i think a large in my mind, large bikes should have a 200, 210 mil dropper compatibility. Um, cause if you're riding a large, you probably have longer legs and want that much drop. And then obviously, you know, sizing, you know, medium gets a 170, small gets a 150. And it seems like it works pretty well, but yeah, some of these bikes come out and you realize you can't run a 200 because the seat tube is too tall. So, um, I, I just got to stand up for us short people. We also would like to have long drop just cause, <laughs> Oh yeah, but you don't need quite as much to make no. the bike uh, the, the seat as far away. But like, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, like Sarah, you had you good? Oh yeah, yeah, I had a couple of the field test bikes a couple years ago in Whistler, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's like a one fifty dropper on a medium should be able to fit that at my height. But yeah, it was just like that one centimeter that you're always moving the dropper down a tiny bit and. Um, that yeah. was the a Cannondale. Uh, Cannondale, yeah. Scalpel. No, not scalpel. Habit. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Scalpel yeah, was this year. Yeah, that did not have a yeah. dropper post. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah, Cannondale and GT for a bit. I the last generation of bikes definitely had seat tubes that were too long. So hopefully that gets fixed for the next versions. Yeah. Uh, but we still um, see it. Yeah. And I think we should I think we should uh hat tip the, the spirit of mike levy here uh bikes without standard full-size bottles are ridiculous just just let us put a proper bottle on in a bike yeah another another problem with that i had the jesse maybe four or five years ago and that's got that little 500 mil they call it like the first master or something uh mine fell out the first ride which i think was a common problem back then and you can't just like buy like a you know, like an off-the-shelf, like, cheap replacement one. You have to buy the YT-specific one. So I was trying to find the prices this morning. I can't find it, but the Cajun bottle is, like, 45 quid, so 80 Canadian dollars, and it's like, just let me buy the bottle I want, you know? Yeah. Proprietary water bottles. Yeah. Not ever. Yeah, that's no, bad. That, no proprietary <laughs> water bottles. And it should just be, like, the bottle that fits should be the full-size bottle, not the kind of smaller one. Like, yeah. the bigger bottle should fit. Just Especially on a large people, size, yeah. Even yeah, medium, and there's I definitely think. been... Yeah has been vocal people saying like, why would we ever design a bike around a water bottle? Well, you can do it and you can, you don't have to compromise. Like there's ways to make bikes work really well and still hold a water bottle. Like that's like I, saying, why, why would I design a bike around a derailleur? 
well, that's what exists right now. And you need it. to. Well, it's funny because there's all these other things you can strap on your bike. But like, if you can't strap a water bottle on your bike, like that's a problem. (laughs) Yeah, it should should fit where it needs to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, it's kind of nice that we're at that point where we can start requesting little amenities on our bikes because the rest works pretty well, you know. Yeah. the rest of the bikes are working good. So now I want holes in the down tube to fill with stuff. And I want water bottles, full-size water bottles on all the bikes. Pretty yeah. good. Probably. I'd like yeah. to have, I think that we could, the hobby horse, we could ride this here. Is it'd be nice to have every bike come with just the basic tools you need to, to work on it. Like the, you know, the Scots come with those little tool thingies in the, it doesn't even need to be in a hole. It can just be just a little toolkit designed for the common fasteners on your bike. Like that just seems like a nice, easy you know, if you buy a motorcycle or a car, it comes with the basic things to take a wheel off or whatever. Does it? Like, if I yeah, buy a you car, could, it doesn't come with a toolkit. Most bike cars these days aren't even coming with like uh, the flat things. They just come with, with a like, spare. Okay, well, that's yeah. stupid too. Yeah. So I'm not too concerned about tools know. coming on my bike because I got my yeah. own that I carry. But yeah, it should hold I just a water think it's bottle. nice. I think it's nice. Uh, okay, well, I'm going to finish mine off with half prize money for the doubleheader races this year. What the fuck? Yeah, that was silly. Yeah. Um, I was not, I was twice as entertained as if there'd just been one race. I was twice as influenced as if there'd just been one race. There were efficiencies of scale with the, the venues, everybody, all the teams had to work way harder this year with logistics. The, you know, the, the toll on the athletes this year was massive. Paying them half prize money for their double header races is ridiculous. And like, I understand that there are, you know, for the prize money, I guess comes from the from the venues, um, and the and the fees and stuff. And I get that everything costs more this year, but if everybody, you know, everybody sacrificed, and the last people to sacrifice should be the athletes that literally put their lives on the line for this shit. Like that is ridiculous. Yeah, it was uh, half price money, but like double entry fees as well, which kind of like sticks in the throat of it oh, i think yeah because yeah. you didn't have to like yeah it's the same venue almost except for a different track it was weird i don't agree with that either oh that that's gross <laughs> like i get that everything was was you know shooting from the hip and i'm just glad people got to make things happen but then the prize money isn't even that wildly much you yeah, know? yeah it, it's not like no one's getting rich off prize money yeah so uh, and i saw that somebody said that that as like a defense of only giving half the prize money. It's like, no, that's not a good reason to have half prize money is that it's not that much. Like, yeah. Anyways, I'm, you know, I hope that obviously the winners folks uh, had, had good contracts that had win bonuses and, and those kinds of things. So that's great. But still you should, you should win the money you're going to win if you win a world cup. Yeah, agreed. Well, it looks like we don't have any double headers in the next year, so <laughs> unless that changes, we, who knows, right? Yeah. Well, it, a, I'm sure that schedule is going to change, and b, I'm disappointed. I would like to see the du- the double header format's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a real shame that it doesn't look like we're going to do that again next year, but I'd say there's a good chance that we do. You know, as they they'll keep that as an option for as they have to work on the season and things change, but. Let's if if we do double headers next year, let's do real prize money. Um, all right, and over to you, James. Seeing as we're racking on the UCI, like in for a penny, in for a pound. Um, mainly European World Cup series. Um, I know that this year obviously is different, and people are just trying to make whatever could work work. But um, yeah, in the past few years, you know, we've had one or two North American rounds, and then. Nothing in Africa, Asia, South America, Australasia. Um, the EWS, I think, is really showing the way on this. You know, they'll either have um, two South American rounds or two Australasian rounds each year, along with North American and European rounds. Um, and, you know, we call it a World Cup. There's riders from all over the world there. Um, it kind of doesn't seem fair, almost, that, you know, the Europeans get to have the shorter traveling time and maybe the conditions they're more used to. and you know, it's just going to be more interesting the, the, the more places we go and the, the further the sport spreads its wings. You know, in previous years, there's been rounds in Brazil, in Japan, in South Africa. So it can be done, um, but we just haven't seen it in recent years. 
it's obviously it's dependent on who steps up to organize these races but i'm sure there's you know there's some way the uci could encourage that or um help help spread the sport in in some way um which would be great to see mm-hmm. and doesn't the home country also get like more spots so if you're kind of looking to develop mountain biking in you know these different countries you would have the opportunity for younger riders who might not be able to travel to Europe to, you know, have a race in their backyard and be able to qualify and make it from there. Yeah. I Is think that true? Usually. I, I mean, at least it was a couple of years ago for cross country racing. Like when at Molson and you would get more Canadian riders like per quota allowed to oh, compete. I don't even know if it's, it's the case a, right now though. Yeah. Even if it's not a quota thing, like it's just easier for juniors to do less traveling and, stuff like that so Mm -hmm. yeah i can see that being the case for sure i do know that there's some talk of some some new usa venues uh in in the next coming years i i i just don't understand how it's such a complex i guess yeah everything i'm sure is harder than we think it is commenting on the podcast from the from the sidelines but not offering solutions we're just complaining (laughs) it's fine (laughs) but you know the, the ews logistically is I would imagine significantly more complex than a down than a downhill race, um, just with that many more participants and the public and all these things, um, and just the, the distance they have to cover, etc. And so, if if the EWS can do it, I think that World Cup downhill and cross country can do it. Yeah, there's um, so I think the next two Masters World Championships are in um, Chile. And I think that's like a warm up for a World Cup down there in like oh, two or three cool. years' time. So, yeah, hopefully that that's going to be something soon. We'll see. Somebody at the UCI is listening to this, like, we're working on it. <laughs> God, shut up. It's like, sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, while we're on the subject of racing, um, Matt Rag brought this one to my attention recently, and he's working on a bigger piece on this. So I won't say too much, but um, World Cup mechanics. Um, I think like something like 95% of them are on part-time contracts and they work a second job um, to get by. Um, Some riders, um, I know Loic Bruni and Troy Brosnan, they both keep their mechanics on all year round. Um, But apparently there's some other riders who take a hit on their personal salary to be able to keep a mechanic on full-time. And it seems like something is up there. Like a rider shouldn't have to take a hit on their own salary to to pay a mechanic, I don't think. Ah. Y'all too, that's too soft. Bike riders can learn to work on their own bike in the off season. It's not so bad. It's not so bad. What's the point of being a pro rider if you don't get your bike cleaned after every ride? (laughs) 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 Oh man, I'll, I'll go to bat for riders on prize money, on bonuses, on all kinds of things. But like, I, to me, I don't get that one. Like, uh, I, I don't have an issue with hiring a mechanic for, the time of the year that you use a full-time mechanic and then not hiring them for the rest of the year when yeah you can change your own brake pads it's good for you i think it's more like the mechanic like how do you get a high end like the best mechanic if you're if you can't say i have a job for you year round if you're like i have a job for you six months of the year then they'll be like sorry Mm -hmm. i'm gonna go work in a bike shop where they're gonna offer me year-round salary or something like that or if you just pay them double and then they can take six months off which would be sweet because <laughs> I'll wrench hard for six months yeah. and then just chill for six months. That sounds all right. Well, I mean, that is what a lot of World Cup mechanics do is they just do their own thing or have their own little, you know, side side gigs in the in the off season. And some of them make r- really good money and some of them make absolutely terrible money where it's just like, wow, I get to be on the World Cup and hang out with these guys. That's a, yeah. So you get a pretty wide range. Um, but no, I don't, I don't see the problem with teams paying mechanics for the time that they're using them that yeah but is it also fair that i guess yeah the riders who do make bigger salaries like it's not that big of a deal to pay their mechanic for the off season and do extra testing on their bike whereas the other riders don't have a mechanic they can work with and test their bike the rest of the year i don't know i mean it seems like you should just be able to do that on your own like it's not that hard like they're bicycles like they're not (laughs) no matter how much you watch the videos and it seems like super complicated and like one click is going to be the difference between you winning or losing a race it's not that hard (laughs) but that's for real (laughs) but that's what i mean so much of racing is in their head too right oh yeah i know like you have basically your tuner is your psychologist like oh yeah i got this shock it's just set for you it's perfect now (laughs) where 
they didn't change anything except cleaned it off in the last race. But yeah, um, the psychology also, seems to be working for the, like Bruni with his mechanic work in there for a year round. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's the, it's the, uh, psychological warfare that he's playing with everybody else with that button. That yeah. Does nothing, does <laughs> yeah. <nothing. laughs> oh man. Uh, um, or, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say my, uh, my big one, which I think we're going to do another podcast on in future. So I won't say too much on this one either is, is gatekeepers. Um, I think we're seeing a bit of a rise of them at the moment with the, the bike boom. Like I say, I won't go too much into that, but definitely something we're going to talk about in future. Um, and then I think that'll be a good one for, for you and me versus Mike and Mike, uh, where, yeah, I, I see a problem with, I don't think it's awesome when we are actively try and shut folks out. But I also see this, the other side where if things grow too fast, it's not good or it can make, problems and things so yeah i'm not actively trying to shut people out i just don't want any more people to mountain bike <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah that's the definition of gatekeeping thank you yeah. <laughs> no because the gate is like i'm just hiding the gate yeah. it's, it's open it's just harder to find maybe maybe, maybe we can find some common ground there yeah yeah, yeah i'm sure we <laughs> that's a good analogy <laughs> all right let's move on to comment gold uh there's some good ones this week uh the expensive bar aligner uh was <clears throat> featured last week, but I think we're going to go back to that well with Adam Koss saying $200 to align my bars. Damn, I could buy two pairs of grips for that price, <laughs> which is quite good. Um, there's also a uh, 55 gram frame mounted first aid kit. And the top comment was from Kinematics. Was it the top comment? Yeah. I think it was the top comment uh, from Kinematics was, no chain tool, no thanks. <laughs> and that's only funny if you've read all the other Pink Bike articles recently where we had a couple of uh, new tools that came up recently and people were upset that new bike tools didn't include a chain tool. So that's funny. Um, and finally, uh, on our field test intro video, an article, uh, S. Spiff. Suspiff? I don't know. <laughs> It could Something. be Spaceman Spiff, which is the character in yeah. Calvin and Hobbes, and I hope it is because Calvin Hobbes is the best. Yeah, Spiff. Tell us what what it's from. Um, their comment is: Yes, I can't wait to see the best bike that money can't buy because it's out of stock for eighteen months, which is a pretty good prediction. Yes. Yeah, if you want to get a bike next year, maybe put your money down now because there's not too many of them out there. Yeah. All right, that's it for us. Let us know if you have any questions. Tell us what bothers you about the bike industry, things that you want to see changed in the near future uh, in the comments. That's all. Thanks very much. See you next week. Mm -hmm.